Let's get into the Word today. Let's take and turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 John. We're going to look at the first six uh, verses of the second chapter in a message that I have entitled, How I Can Know That I Know. And so with that, let's take our hearts uh, to the Lord. Uh, Father, we thank you just for uh, your faithfulness to us. God, it is so good to worship you, to learn of you, and to, uh, Lord, be changed by you. And so to that end, that's our prayer. Give us ears to hear you, God, that we might respond appropriately to you. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Uh, Jody, did we get it worked out up there online? No? Okay. So I was talking to someone earlier today about getting online, uh, but we're having some technical difficulties today with our online service. So congratulations, you get it. They don't. Guys, here we go. The book of 1 John is incredibly practical. It is very black and white. Uh, John is all about giving us tools that enable us to discern or distinguish between true and false, between right and wrong, uh, godliness and ungodliness. You know, every now and then you'll hear a believer uh, speak about their, what they call their gift of discernment. And guys, I'm not one to say that the Holy Spirit can't supernaturally enable someone to discern a situation or a circumstance. Uh, I'm also one to say that I believe that there is no all-inclusive, completely exhaustive list of giftings of the Holy Spirit found in Scripture. And what I mean by that is that it seems to me that the Holy Spirit is well able to gift a person in ways not listed uh, in Scripture. There's listings of examples of ways that he will gift a believer, but not all-inclusive, all-exhaustive, only this way or that way kind of a thing. Having said that, you should know that the Bible does not recognize, at least in a written way, a quote-unquote gift of discernment. Now, certainly it identifies a gift of the discerning of spirits. And at the risk of splitting hairs, that the gift of discernment and the discerning of spirits seems distinctly different to me. To discern whether something is of a deceptive or demonic spirit masquerading kind of as a spirit of light, if you'll allow me, seems different than a generic kind of categoric ability to sense if a situation is right or wrong, something's amiss or whatever. What the Bible does say is this. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and notice, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, to recognize right from wrong, uh, to distinguish truth from error, uh, to discern acceptable and appropriate from unacceptable and inappropriate, I need to have a good working knowledge of the Word of God. Uh, if not, what makes what I think any better than what you think? I mean, why should I acquiesce to what you say is right, or why would you agree to what I say is right? You see, God's Word is the standard, the absolute of truth versus error. And John is all about equipping us in these ways by giving to us God's word. And so with that, let's turn our attention 
chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read our full little section of Scripture here, then we'll come back, kind of pick it apart piece by piece. Sound okay? Okay. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children. Remember, John is John like the age. This is actually a, a, like a real term of endearment. Think of almost like grandchildren, like my little lovely ones or whatever the case may be. Uh, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Well, now that's a lot, isn't it? So let's turn our attention back to the very first verse. My little children... These things I write to you so that you may not sin. Let's stop right here. This is one of those sections of Scripture that if you are not careful, if you do not take into consideration the context, you might really get tripped up. But family, we need to remind ourselves that when John wrote this, he did not write uh, or insert chapter and verse divisions. He just wrote a letter, and this is still flowing out of, it's still following what we just studied there in chapter 1. And back in chapter 1, John spent a significant section of Scripture making it clear that sin is simply an inevitable fact in the Christian's life, this side of eternity. He said things like, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And again, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His Word is not in us. However, sin in the life of the believer presents a problem in that it breaks our fellowship, again, not our sonship, but our fellowship with God. You've heard the word, what fellowship has light? with darkness. And as we learned back in chapter 1, God is light. This is the message that we have heard from him. We declare to you that, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And so if we walk, that is order our lives in darkness, which is kind of a euphemism for sin, if we're walking, if we're ordering our lives in or after sin, then that fellowship is broken, right? Light and darkness. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. And we spent some time talking about this because every now and then I'll run across a believer, perhaps you do as well, and they'll confide in me that, you know, they just don't think that God is really hearing them or, you know, listening to them uh, or responding to them any longer. And can I just tell you, the truth is maybe he's not. Uh, It could be that that bond of fellowship is broken through sin in your life. 
Remember this verse? I'll take your attention back. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But notice your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. You see, when there is a break, when there is a breach in our relationship with God, it's never on his end. And it's always on our end. And it happens through sin. In the next verse there in Isaiah 59, God gives a few examples of how that chasm was created between them at that time. He says, for your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. Guys, lies, iniquity, perversity, maybe in your case, it's bitterness, it's unforgiveness, it's lust, it's, you know, whatever the case may be, these are the kinds of things that create separation between us and God. Yet God, in his great grace and mercy, has made the pathway uh, to restoration and reconciliation through what the Bible teaches is confession and repentance. Remember, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we'll humble ourselves, if we'll come over to God's side concerning the matter, we'll see our sin the way he sees it, acknowledge it for what it really is, and turn from it. Forgiveness and cleansing are there. And now, as John carries us into what's become chapter 2, He's clarifying for us the fact that even though uh, God has made a way that we would be cleansed of sin, that doesn't make it okay to go ahead and kind of confine ourselves to sin. You know, as though we adopt some kind of fatalistic mentality. Well, you know, if I say I have no sin, I deceive myself. I'm going to sin and God's going to forgive. Sinning is my business. Forgiving is his business. Uh, I guess we're just both in business here. Uh, I'll just sin and confess and he'll forgive and this and that. And John says, no. In fact, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. Guys, let's not forget his whole letter up to this point has been about God coming in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we can have fellowship with him as we walk in the light, as he is in the light. And therefore, John says, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. You see, our aim is to abide in fellowship with God. And you can't do that if you're constantly breaking that communion through sin in your life. And so he says, look, I'm writing so that you'll just knock it off. Quit sinning. You see, don't sin. When he says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin, don't, don't get it twisted here. He's not saying you can lead a life of sinless perfection. Uh, he's saying we all have a sin nature, but that doesn't make it okay to just go with it. We've also been given a new nature in Christ, yes? And if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. And old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. You have been born again as by the Spirit of God. And so the idea here is walk in the newness of life. And just giving way to temptation isn't indicative of the new nature. 
It's indicative of the old. John says, don't go with the old nature. Walk in the new. Paul would put it this way. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit or order our lives after the spirit. Guys, God has not left us without resources to walk in victory over sin. So let's not give way to sin. Uh, to the Romans, Paul, you remember he said, let us reckon ourselves in fact, or he says, let us reckon ourselves indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so that's the idea here. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. Reckon yourselves indeed dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, having said that, though sin will not be, should not be, ought not be uh, a practiced pattern in our lives, uh, the transparent truth is that it's not a matter of if we will fail or sin. It's only a matter of when. When you or I uh, do slip or stumble, sin, God has made provision for us. Notice verse 1, carrying on, he says, but or and if anyone does sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, or, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, you missed your cue. That is a great place for a hallelujah, for an amen. For a praise God, you know, for glory, whatever. Let's try it again. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's what I'm talking about. Hallelujah. <laughs> if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. One thing that we should point out is that when the word, or that the word translated here in our New King James Version, it's translated sins. If anyone sins, this word sins is in the aorist tense. It's in the subjunctive mood. Now, I love when I get to say stuff like that because it makes me sound really smart. Um, but essentially what that means is that John is saying, but, or you can say and, but he says, but, so, you know, uh, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but, he says, if, hypothetically speaking, you were to commit an act of sin. Okay, that's what he's saying here. The idea is not that of um, non-repentant, habitual act or a lifestyle, okay, but rather this infrequent, isolated, hypothetical event that takes place, okay? Uh, you stumbled. It's not the norm in your life. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, you don't lead a life of sin. That's characteristic of the non-believer. But you did sin. Okay. He says, and if anyone sins, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, with this word advocate, think legal defense attorney. Think intercessor. Uh, Think one who stands in the gap on behalf of, okay? It draws our minds back to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, notice, always lives to make intercession for them. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. By the way, I should say at this point, a little insight for you, God is not shocked at human behavior, okay? Do you realize that? Human behavior does not shock God. He's seen it all, and he's seen it all in advance, Don't think that he forgave you or that he saved you back then only to go, man, had I only known what they were going to do now, I'd have never forgiven them. I'd have never saved them. Man, I'd have had a different mind about them altogether, you see. No. He knew then what you'd do today, what you will do tomorrow, and his forgiveness is available to you Jesus is there for you. He intercedes before the Father on behalf of you. Praise God. You know, it seems that today, guilty, not guilty, has little to nothing to do with the outcome of said trial. What really seems to matter. What it really seems to boil down to is how good is your lawyer? Friends, I got good news for you. Uh, In Christ, you have the best lawyer in existence. You have Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, what that means, what is this, the idea behind this Jesus Christ, the righteous? I love saying that. You should try it. You know, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It just rolls off the tongue, you know, so well. But the idea behind this title attached to him, Jesus Christ, the advocate specifically, Jesus Christ, the lawyer, the one who stands in the gap on behalf of you, Jesus Christ, the righteous, what that means is that Jesus is fully qualified to defend you because he himself is sinlessly perfect. He has passed heaven's bar exam. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's completely qualified to represent his clients in heaven's court of law. Now, the difference, however, I should say one of many. No offense if you're a lawyer. Uh, The difference between defense lawyers, the defense lawyers of this world, and our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, again, I just, you got to say it that way, is as to where defense lawyers of this world argue for their client's innocence, Jesus makes a full and complete confession of our guilt before heaven's court. 
He acknowledges we deserve the full wrath and unabated penalty of the law, which is death. He then, however, informs the court, if you will, that this man, that this woman uh, belongs to him, that he himself has paid the penalty of our sin. He's bore the wrath that our sin deserves. The the gavel slams uh, on the bench and the judge cries out, guilty is charged, penalty paid in full. You, sir, you, ma'am, are free indeed, you see. Uh, And lest we be confused and and think that that God is just always on the, the hunt to make us pay, but... Whew, man, we really, we dodged the bullet because Jesus got in front of God for us and kind of, you know, uh, held him off, staved him off, and then God's caused the Father to kind of cool his jets. You know, let's remember that it was God, the Father, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. It's the love of God for you that ensured Provision was made available to you in Christ. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Propitiation. Man, that is a big Bible word, isn't it? What does propitiation mean? Well, It simply means a sacrifice sufficient to satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sin. Propitiation is just easier to say. You know, we could say, and he himself is the sacrifice sufficient to satisfy the righteous wrath of God against the sin of the world. Or, if it suits you, we can just say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not ours only, but also for the whole world. Ladies and gentlemen, the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross satisfied the sin debt of the whole world. Think about that. That's an incredible accomplishment. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died for the sins of the world. Guys, now there are some in this what we would call extreme Calvinistic sense who believe in what's called limited atonement. Essentially what that means is that uh, Jesus only died for those who would one day come to believe in him or believe on him. Um, I personally prefer to take John's word for it when he said that uh, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world, okay? So that when you're sharing the hope of the gospel with someone, you can tell them with confidence Jesus died for their sins, that he paid the price for us all. Now, does that mean everyone will be saved? No. Why not? Well, let's circle back to John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Notice, here's the catch. Here's the caveat. Here's the condition. 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Forgiveness is available to all, but it's only accredited. It's only given to those who will believe in Jesus Christ. The critical step between condemnation to salvation is repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. God has made provision for the whole world to be made right with Him. And He will give you the gift of everlasting life freely, but only in Christ. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay? Now, in verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. Uh, He who uh, says he abides in him ought himself also to walk. That is live your life just as he walked or just as he lived his life. You see how practical John is? Guys, there is no ambiguity There is no uncertainty. Uh, There is no uh, lack of clarity. He just keeps it super simple and makes it plain. Now, by this, we know that we know him. It is not uncommon for people, believers, to wrestle with doubts or to wonder. You know, am I really saved? Uh, Do I really know Jesus Christ? Do I really have a relationship with Jesus? John says there's a very simple litmus test. You can know that you know him if you render obedience to him. Are you following me? The evidence of someone truly knowing God is that they live a life of obedience to the Word of God. The Christian does not simply do as he or as she pleases. The Christian does as God pleases. Does this make sense to you? And it's important, you guys, that we don't miss this. We don't obey out of legal obligation. Do you understand? We obey out of an overflow of love. Guys, this makes all the difference. Jesus made it plain in John chapter 14. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the word keep here, it's the same word keep here in 1 John, just so you know. It means to tend to, uh, to uh, guard or to tend to carefully. It means that we're carefully studying God's ways, uh, God's word. We're finding out what's pleasing to him. We're being very careful and intentional to do that which he desires of us. Guys, 
keeping his commandments, and don't think 10 commandments, okay? Though all 10 commandments are reiterated in the New Testament with the exception of one. Anybody know this is just a bonus part, not, not included in the study? I'm just throwing it in. Anyone know? It's, it's the Sabbath, okay? You shall keep the Sabbath. Not listed in the New Testament. You know why? Because Jesus himself is our Sabbath. In him, he said, come to me, all you who uh, labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. He has completed the work. We, it's not about what we do. It's about what he's done. We rest in the finished work of the cross, okay? But, but don't think Ten Commandments. Think, think instruction of the word of God. You can keep my word, okay? Um, it's not a condition. Keeping his commandments is not a condition for knowing him. It's important that you you realize this. It's the fruit that demonstrates that we do know him. Does that make sense to you? It's not if you want to know God, keep his word. It's if you do know God, you will keep his word. Uh, Let me say it again. It's not legal obligation. It's an overflow of love. And so we know true knowledge of God contains kind of a a number of things. It contains intellectual, uh, moral, and spiritual. All of these are are, uh, elements contained in the knowledge of God. To know isn't just intellectual, it's experiential. Does that make sense? Um, It takes us back to fellowship with God, a sharing in common, a relationship with Him. Now, on the other side of the coin, the one who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Wow. Kind of read that and you go, okay, John, don't hold back. You know, people uh, will refer to John as the apostle of love. And I don't know why, I mean, I do know why he writes a lot about love, but you know what Jesus referred to him as? The son of thunder. This is the guy that was like, Lord, should we call fire down on this city? We'll just destroy him. He's like, whoa, cool your jets, John. You know, uh, he just didn't have a problem being blunt. And I kind of etched in my notes being tactfully blunt, but then I kind of crossed it out because I don't know that John really even cared if he was too tactful. I think he just said what he needed to say. Now, he spoke the truth in love. I don't want to, don't get that twisted. But I mean, he was just, he would just, this is the way it is. And he says here that the truth of consistent obedience to God's word is so certain that if someone's life is not marked by obedience, it is fair to challenge the reality and the validity of that individual's relationship with God. Think about that. Kind of harkens back to when Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. That a good tree won't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree won't bear good fruit. And ladies and gentlemen, this is where it's critical that uh, you and me, that we are careful to distinguish the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Because I think that some people, actually, I think that uh, a lot of people kind of confuse the two. It's why Peter said that we're to make our calling and election sure. And again, John, guys, I don't want you to be, 
misdirected here. John is not speaking of the occasional slip or stumble, uh, you know, the, the isolated sin event. We've already established that. He says, if anyone says, I know him, uh, and the with verb tenses are parsing these. It's like if anyone is continually saying that I know him. In other words, this is like the common uh, declaration, the common confession, the common, this is the way that they're, they're speaking with you. And, and, but then is continually, okay? So anyone who's just saying this is, this, this is the, the hill they've stood on, this is what they're saying, their de- declaration, their, you know, their communication, I know the Lord. Uh, but then they're continually in that same sense not keeping his commandments. They're not rendering obedience, okay? So this is what they're always saying, but it's, this is what they're always doing. He says that person uh, that just never renders obedience to Scripture, they don't know God's Word, they don't obey God's Word. Well, you meet that person, not only are they lying to you, it's possible that they're lying to themselves. They've deceived perhaps themselves. They may know a fair amount, even a lot, about God, but they don't know God. And the evidence of that is the fact that they simply don't honor and obey God's word. You say, well, I'm not altogether certain, you know, what what scripture, you know, I don't know my Bible that, that well. I got, I got one question for you. Whose fault is that? Right? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, one that rightly divides the word of truth. You have a responsibility and accountability before God to know His word. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Now, the meaning behind this word perfected, you've probably heard it before. It's simply that of maturity, of completion. In other words, a mature love for God will out itself, okay, uh, will uh, display itself in obedience. And it's the presence of this obedience overflowing from love one who loves me, remember, that gives us the assurance that we're truly in Christ. If you're never being obedient to Christ, you probably have a fair... It's probably fair for you to like not be sure. And you should probably do what it takes to be sure. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying, I don't know. Just like you, you're like, I don't know. Well, I'm not obeying the Lord. Well, then you should probably make your calling and election sure. I would rather err to the side of encouraging you to to love the Lord Jesus Christ and obey the word of God rather than go, well, you know what? You're probably all right. By this we know, right? Verse 5, that we are in him. What's the take-home here, guys? John is saying that the important thing is to know Jesus Christ. Do you see that? By this we know we know Him. He just keeps talking like this. The important thing is to know Jesus Christ. And there's a way you can have assurance that you do know Him. Listen, there are a lot of people in this country that claim to be Christian. Do you understand that? 
a matter of fact. Now, it's not near what it once was. The most recent kind of numbers that I could come down to is it's actually it's down to about 64% of America that claims to be Christian. Now, of those, uh, as Justin pointed out to us last week, only about 6% hold to a biblical worldview or really know their Bibles and seek to adhere to and uh, administer the truth of and walk in the light that reflects, you know, these kinds of things of, of what the Bible actually teaches. Now, that's a, now listen, 64% saying Christian, 6% holding to a biblical worldview. Now, that's a pretty significant gap, wouldn't you say? Now, I'm not saying that the remaining 58%, uh, that none of them are truly Christians, but what I am saying is that when Christ gives you life, when you become a new creation, when you've been given a new nature, guys, that nature cries out to God for fellowship and wants to be found pleasing and obedient to God. Going to church doesn't mean you know God. Um, saying the occasional prayer, uh, putting an offering in the plate as it passes by, none of these things are indicative that I, you know God, okay? The evidence which leads to assurance is obedience to the Word of God. Or as John says here in verse 6, and uh, with that, Karen, is Karen closing? I don't see, yeah, there you are. Yeah, going down. As John says here in verse 6, He who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. When we're abiding in Christ, we'll walk as he walked. Now again, guys, we sometimes, you know, when we break God's word down like this and kind of look at it in bite-sized pieces, it can really help our, our learning, Yes? But sometimes it can confuse the overarching context of it all. So what do you mean that he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked? Man, Jesus was, that's a pretty high bar. Yeah, but the thing is, is that we're not talking about sinless perfection. John already established that, right? He just established that. But the earmarkers of the life of Christ was that of obedience. I always do those things that please the Father and love. So the one who's abiding in Christ should be leading a life like Christ, rendering obedience and love. Does this make sense? Guys, when you are born again, everything changes. You don't love sin like you used to. Uh, you don't plan to sin like you used to. You don't look back with fondness upon your sin like you used to. In fact, you're ashamed of your sin. Um, and although sin isn't, in the sense, ejected from your heart, in the sense that we all still wrestle with that sin nature, it's certainly dejected in your heart. And if we're truly connected to Jesus, abiding in Jesus, we'll be growing, becoming more and more like Jesus. Do you see the progression here? Listen, when you love someone, 
I mean, when you love someone, you want to please them. Um, you don't want to disappoint them. And so when it comes to the why behind the what that we do in rendering obedience, the question isn't really, are you committed to Christ? The question really is, do you love Christ? To know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to obey Him. Amen? All right. God, we thank You for Your Word. For Your love. And for the fact that You have made provision for us in Christ. That we might know You, abide in You, have a relationship with You. And we thank You, God, for making it plain that we might be assured of the truth, that we know you, abide in you, are growing to be made more like you, God. Forgive us when we kick against the goads, when we resist the unction, the prodding, the pulling of your spirit. Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you and say, have your way. And guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, remember, remember the take home. The important thing is to know Jesus Christ. Not know about Him. To know Him. And the first step of obedience is to believe on Him. That you might be saved by Him. Jesus died for your sin. He shed his blood. He was buried and rose again the third day that you might have life in his name. So the exhortation is turn from your sin and trust in him.